Um, but I do have uh, our final message in our justice series this morning, and I hope that has been helpful. I hope that with all the different things that we've been talking about, there's been inspirational, it's been stirring up. But I also realize that some people are probably asking the question of, there is so much that I see, there's so much need that has been made aware to me, how do I know what I'm meant to do about that? Maybe you feel that you are inadequate, that you don't have the skills, you don't have the resources to be able to pull through and to be able to help, or maybe you just don't know uh, which one to choose, or maybe you have chosen to do way too much and you've got too much on your plate and then you're just going, oh, I have just made the biggest mistake of my life. So how do we actually, as Christians, knowing that justice and righteousness are meant to be flowing from our lives, is meant to be something that is ongoing, is not meant to just be something that we do on and off when we feel like it, it's meant to be part of our lives, that's what the Bible describes, that's what we've been talking about. How do we make sure that this is a sustainable, remember that Amos said, let it be a never-failing stream, never-failing <laughs> and that's, I think, really important for us as Christians that we don't just say, I want to do good, and then you, you fail. <laughs> I think people who are in crisis situations have already had many things in their life fail. And if we want to help, we need to make sure that we don't fail. And, um, uh, and, and so I want to talk about that today. And so uh, I'm going to turn to John chapter 5. It's one of the miracles that I really love. It's one of those miracles we talk about a fair bit at our church. And um, John 5 verse 1 says this, Sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, this is important because um, it means that there are going to be lots of people in Jerusalem. Uh, when the festival time came, uh, in particular, the males in the Jewish culture, they were meant to come to Jerusalem and they were meant to go to the temple to celebrate this festival. And so lots of things happening, it is, it's a buzzing time of the year, but Jesus wasn't there for the festival. Let's read on in verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the water, the first one into the pool after each each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Kind of weird, isn't it? And if you look into your Bible, uh, especially uh, the more um, up-to-date uh, translations, you would see a little note that verse 4 is not in the normal text, it's in the footnote, right? And the reason for that is because not all the texts include verse 4, the whole explanation of this angel touching the water and people getting healed. What we think, um, what scholars believe is that that was added a little bit later by a scribe who was writing down the story and going, hey, people now don't know about Bethesda. They don't know what's going on there. So why did Jesus go to this pool? What was taking place there? Uh, what, what do we need to know in order to be able to follow the story? And so this person writes this little note. However, the note is quite a cultural specific note. And so it's still like angel coming down, stirring the water. What in the world's going on? So let me try to give you my explanation from the research that I've done. And um, remember a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about the theme of water in the Bible. Flowing water in the Bible represents the potential for life. Remember that in the desert area, if you have a river, it means you have life. And, and so that's a really important image for the people that are living in that culture and living in that space. Now, so this pool of Bethesda 
um, is, 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 um, uh, it's got water in it, but somehow it's also got flowing water coming through it. So more than likely, these pools were fed by some kind of underwater uh, water source, and the water would somehow maybe get heated or, or somehow get pushed through from some pressure, and it would bubble up. And so there's this moving water. And so somehow someone made the connection, moving water, life, healing. Now, this is not super far-fetched for us, right? Because you go to hot springs where there's this thermally heated, supercharged water, and we go into it and we go like, oh, I feel like a new person again, right? We all think that. And so somehow someone made that connection. I wonder if it's heated. It would have been pretty cool. But I don't know. That, uh, 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 but, but, but that was possibly what was going on there. There was this spring uh, that was feeding this water uh, that would bubble up. Now, the scribes says that an angel would touch the water, stir it up, and I think that that was trying to put a bit of a Christian slant on what was going on. Because archaeologically speaking, the Pool of Bethesda was actually a pagan shrine. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a Jewish place. It was literally, it, it, the temple is here, um, pools of Bethesda were literally here, but it was outside the city walls. We've got a picture of that. So you can see on the left that big thing, that, was actually, uh, that is actually in one of the museums in um, Jerusalem. Beck and I were there. And um, so you can see the, the, the big structure, that's the temple. On to the right on the picture, the little blue box, that's the pools of Bethesda. That's how close it was to the temple. But you will notice uh, that the city walls actually go in. The, these walls are new and they were constructed much later. The city walls were actually back there. And so the pools of Bethesda were outside the city limits. It, it, it wasn't part of the city of Jerusalem. It was just outside. And somehow a pagan uh, um, group of people found these pools or, or they came to these pools and they put their superstition on it. And they said that these pools had some spiritually charged healing properties. And so all the people who were sick who weren't getting treatment in Jerusalem, came to these pools because they needed hope. That was what was going on. And so the name of the place is very significant. The name Bethesda actually means the house of mercy and also means flowing water, which is where you get this idea that the water is flowing. But isn't it a little bit sad that in order to find a house of mercy, people left the city? The people who needed the most mercy left the city in order to find mercy. And I wonder how, and that's been always one of the main things for me when I read the story is like Jesus had to leave the city in order to find this pool and in order to bring this healing to this person. And so this is something that is going on. And so let's read on, let's see what Jesus does. Verse 5 one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in his condition for a long time, so notice this, Jesus was actually talking to him and finding out how this guy had been going. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, this man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, from there, 
We don't know exactly what happens, but Jesus probably just leaves the pool. And so I want you to take note. I want you to, to picture this. These pools are filled. A multitude of sick people were there. And note this, that for Jesus to step into a place where uh, these people were was very dangerous for a Jewish man who was in Jerusalem for the festival. Why? Because there were all of these kosher laws uh, that the Jewish people had to observe. And for him to leave the city, go to the pools where people who were possibly and uh, 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 considered unclean, if they touched him, Jesus wouldn't be able to go to the temple to celebrate the festival. So Jesus took a big risk going to these pools. He sees the multitude of sick people. And what does he do? He heals One. Does it make sense to any of us? The God of mercy, the God of grace, the God who loves us all, he goes in, he steps in, he sees all the need, and he heals one. Now, I I don't know why Jesus chose that man. Was it because he was there the longest? You get the award. You've been here for 38 years. Jesus is going to heal you. Or, or was it because he said a prayer in the middle of the night and so somehow Jesus knew that he was ready to be healed? What was going on? We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus healed one. And when we think about justice flowing, I think some of us get this picture when, when God is stirring on our hearts, I need to do something with my life in regards to how I'm living with people, how I'm giving to people, how I'm being generous. We get caught up in, I don't know what to do because there's need here, there's need there. Who, how do I justify and prioritize whose need has more validity for me to serve? You know, we literally can walk down at an Albany Highway strip and you will see need. And in the middle of winter, the need is somehow, you sense it is more pressing. It is there. Just the other day, I had a door knocker at my house saying that, uh, you know, the government is not supporting uh, our, our, our cancer uh, program, and so we need your help. And I'm like, well, there you go, there's another need. Beg and I sponsor four kids, and now you want me to sponsor more kids. And if I was stepping into the pool of Bethesda, it would feel overwhelming. I think that's one of the greatest tragedies in our Christian lives, that we get overwhelmed by the needs that we see. And so, so often, many of us shut our eyes to all the needs and just go, no, 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 too hard. Right? I will wait till I am bigger, stronger, better. I'll become Bill Gates, I have billions of dollars, and then I'll give away 90%. Nice and easy. Is that what we're supposed to do? Jesus has another way of dealing with this, and we read about this in verse 19. See, religious leaders found out that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, which is taboo, da-da-da. And so they just asked, Jesus, how, why are you doing this? And Jesus gave them the answer, verse 19, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Perhaps Jesus knew walking into Bethesda that his role that day wasn't to heal the multitudes, but to heal the one. And that gave him a focus and a mission. See, God put on my heart many years ago this little phrase that good intentions are not good enough. 
See, many of us, when we are stirred up to do something for God, we start to have these good intentions, right? We intend to do good. We desire to do good. It is something in our hearts. We want to be good people. We want to be good Christians. We intend to do good. But when we don't move from intention to mission, we end up doing bad things. I read a book a while ago that was given to me by a friend who works um, in Compassion, and the book is called When Helping Hurts. And I read this book, and it was written from a missionary perspective, and it was written about how all these first world nations, they go to these third world nations, and they do their, their missionary holidays, give a bunch of money, give a bunch of goods, think that they've done so much good, and then leave. And they talked about research that shows that those communities are far less well off. They're actually harmed by the good intentions of these first world churches. And it wasn't just in uh, um, uh, uh, third world nations, it was also in the, in, in, in the different areas where you get these uh, 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 going into these uh, socio, 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 oh my gosh. <laughs> low socioeconomic places and trying to do good by just having good intentions. I said, no, do your homework. And I think that's one of the things that we don't stop to do enough as Christians. We think that because I'm led by the Spirit. (laughs) What does it mean for you to be led by the Spirit? Oh, I felt something. That was your dinner last night. That was you watching the TV and you saw that very sad sequence of events that was meant to pull on your heartstrings. It was the spirit that spoke. It was the spirit that spoke. It was your emotions that spoke. There's a difference there. We need to be like Jesus that knew that his whole life was on mission. And if his whole life was on mission, he needed to speak with the mission director. He needed to speak with his father. He needed to speak with God. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to put time aside to be able to watch and see and hear what the Father was doing, how much more do we on this earthly plane? Because our good intentions will move us, but where are they going to move us to? A few years ago, a couple uh, came up to Beck and myself, and they said, we want to pray for you. And we're like, oh, cool, love prayer. And they say, we want to pray for you to have a child. I was like, yeah, great. Because at that point in time, we had uh, applied to be in the adoption pool. And we were, I think we were approved or about to be approved. I think that's where we were at. And so we said, yeah, all right, no, no worries. That this is where we are at. Explained to them the part of the adoption process. And um, they stopped us. And they said, no, no, we're going to pray for something better. We're going to pray for you to have your own child. Which if you know adoption talk, own child is a stupid statement. Sam is as much my own child as your child is your own child. Sam doesn't belong to anyone else. He belongs to us legally, even to the point where the government has decided that an adoptee receives a new birth certificate so that no idiot needs to ask them, who are your real parents? Because it shows birth certificate and it says us. But this couple didn't listen And they said, no, God's got something better. Because that's their experience, because they've got so many kids, they don't know what to do with them. (laughs) And so they say, you need more of what blessing I've got. And I was like, that is not a blessing. We could not stop them from praying for us. Because their good intentions were better than our experiences and our life. 
See, what happens with good intentions is that good intentions make us proud. Good intentions make us feel as though we are the ones doing good, and so that, that deserves some brownie points. But when we understand that we are on mission, it makes us humble. Because this mission is more important than my own pride, than my own ego. When I'm on mission, I understand that what I'm doing is significant. What I'm doing makes a, a difference in eternity, and I have to consider what I'm doing. When I'm on mission, I am humble and I listen. Remember when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda, he sat down with this guy. Maybe he, I don't know if he sat down, doesn't say that. But he spoke with this guy and it says when he learned that he had been there for 38 years. I don't know how long that conversation would have gone. I doubt Jesus would go, hey, how long have you been here for? Because it's a kind of a rude question. I think they will have had a little bit of a conversation, say, oh, how long have you been here for? Maybe three minutes, five minutes, I don't know. And the guy begins to talk. And notice when the guy says, I've been here for 38 years, Jesus doesn't say, well, you know what? I am the Son of God. And the Father spoke to me last night. And he says, you will be well. And so take up your mat and walk. Notice that Jesus says, do you want to, oh, you've been here 38 years. Do you, do you want to be well? And the guy says something that is a bit ambiguous, basically says no one's been here for me. And Jesus says, well, here I am. Jesus never talked about his authority. He never talked about his mission. He didn't talk about himself. But yet Christians with good intentions are so full of themselves because they're having good intentions but not a good mission. And what we need to do when we go on this justice, when we learn that justice needs to flow from us, we need to understand that, one, I'm humble enough to know that I can't do this by myself. I need God, and I need to hear from God. I need, need to be able to know what my mission is. I need to be able to hear what my mission is. I cannot be blinded overwhelmed by the needs that this world have. Remember that Jesus at one point, he did say, the sick you will always have with you, the poor you will always have with you. He said that injustice in this plane of existence will probably continue. But then he says, but, and so we need to understand that, well, our job is not to solve all the world's problems. Perhaps if we understand that our jobs or responsibility is just to be obedient. God, you have created me and you know how I work. You know what makes me get up each day. You know the giftings and the abilities. You, you, you've put me together. So how would you like me to live on mission today? One of the things I've learned about obedience is that it's a sneaky thing. And kids learn this really quickly. Because if a kid can convince you that they didn't hear you, they can convince you that they're not being disobedient. <laughs> All right? Sam, torn you for the third time. Pick up that toy. <laughs> we do that with God. Peck, your heart's meant to break for that person. You need to go on mission for that person. Hmm? Hmm? 
We need to get to a place where we're humble enough to every single day go, my life is not my own. It was bought at a price. We were singing beautiful songs that were reminding us of how Christ paid the price for my life. And I hope that we can say, like Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so every breath that I take, I give to the Lord. And so God, speak to me. What is my mission? Help me stay humble as I complete this mission. Help me to stay curious. <laughs> Help me to learn what I need to learn. Help me to take that step today. Help me to step into Bethesda, to be the one who can give mercy to the one who needs mercy. But help me not to get overwhelmed by all the needs in this place. We need to be that kind of church that listens, obeys, and stays humble. If I can put one last thought out there, is that when we start our mission of justice, don't do it alone. When I read the New Testament, there are very few occasions where a person was working alone. In fact, when I read the book of Acts, I think there's only one occasion where Philip the evangelist gets teleported, which is really kind of cool, <laughs> to speak to uh, 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 people. He's the only one that I read that is alone. There is Paul and John, uh, sorry, not Paul and John, there's Peter and John, there's Paul and Silas, there's Paul and Barnabas, there's, there's Paul and a whole bunch of people that he calls his sons in the faith. That all of these teams, when Jesus was commissioning his disciples to go and do the work, what he do? He sent them out in pairs. And so another part of this humility of our mission is that we share it with someone else who can help us. You'd say, I, I really feel that God's calling me to this. And you have someone next to you that goes, yeah, I can see it. And I feel it too. Let's go for this. Or let's check. Let's discern. Let's, that's what we were doing in week one of the series. We need to discern together. This, this missional life is going to get complicated. This missional life is going to get overwhelming at times. This missional life is going to include all sorts of distractions and is going to include all sorts of pain, possibly. Because when you journey with someone who is in pain, you will feel that pain. And yet, God calls us to be that kind of a church. And so let's learn how to hear His voice, to be obedient, and to partner up and to do something about this. Perhaps over morning tea, you can talk to someone and say, hey, I think we've got the same kind of a call. Can we do something? You and me. Let's do the Peter and John thing. Let's do the Paul and Barnabas thing. I'll be Barnabas, you be Paul. I'll encourage you and you do it. <laughs> Whatever it is, why can't we actually do that? As a pastor, one of the things that I love is I love getting the big picture of what our church is doing. But one of the things I don't like is having to be the one that finds out all these things and get people going. Because that tells me, no, I shouldn't say it that way. But what my concern is, is that you're being motivated by needs that I'm presenting to you. And you're not being motivated by God's voice that He is speaking to you. I'm here to encourage you, I'm here to teach you, I'm here to support you. And we together are all meant to be doing that too. But remember that God has created you for good works. We did a study in Ephesians a few 
a month and a half ago. And it says, He's created you for good works. He planned out those good works for you beforehand, before you were born. He's got a mission for you today. And the mission today might be in a more research phase. It might be in an exploration phase. It might be doing the work phase. Whatever phase it is, it's for today. And you've got to do something about it. You've got to. There's so much need out there. And it's not all for you to serve and all not for you to, to, to solve, but it's for all of us to participate in. My hope is that the pools of Bethesda are not the place that people go to to find mercy. But people will understand that the house of God is the house of mercy. Why? Because Christians bring that mercy, bring that justice, and bring that righteousness wherever they go. And so that people will go, wow, where do these people come from? Where is this stream of living water? Where is this potential for life coming from? It's coming from the church. So this morning, if I can just pray, we're going to close here. And if at the end of this prayer, you feel like, man, God's stirring and you don't really know what to do. You want someone to stand with you and to pray with you. We'll have a team up here ready to stand and to pray with you. But I believe that all of us have the ability to hear from God. And all of us can have the humility to act out in obedience. And those are the first steps that we can all take. So let me pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that first and foremost that you came and you stepped into our lives, each and every one of us. That at some point, maybe our lives felt like we were at the pool of Bethesda waiting for mercy. And there you were. You stepped out, you reached out, you cared for us, and you gave us new life. And God, I pray that you have called us to living this big life that you have planned for us beforehand. And I pray that you will stir and that you will move and that you will speak to each and every one of us. You will help us um, to stay humble. You will help us to, to live our lives on mission as you have called us to. And I pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.